Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski. I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in breast and gynecologic cancers, and I started this podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through and have experienced cancer in some way. So welcome. I have Janet with me today, and she's going to be sharing a little bit of a different perspective as someone who is a caregiver of uh, someone who, with cancer. So welcome, Janet. Thank you for being here. And can you start by introducing yourself and telling the listeners a little bit about who you are? Sure, I'd be happy to. And thanks for the opportunity, Dr. Toplinski, for uh, being on Interlude. So my name is Janet Fanaki. I live in Toronto, Canada with my husband and two children, uh, two teenage children. Um, my husband was diagnosed with glioblastoma, uh, which is an aggressive form of brain cancer back in 2016 when he was 47 years old. Um, at the time, our children were in grade nine and in grade 12. And um, Two weeks after he was diagnosed, he went in for a full craniotomy and um, came out with, I think, 47 staples in his head. Um, and that was done at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto uh, by Dr. Sunit Das. Eight weeks later, we had a, a round of radiation and oral chemotherapy, which was part of a standard plan for glioblastoma. And... Um, it was a traumatic time. And, uh, you know, basically overnight, uh, he was thrown into the uh, role of being a uh, cancer patient. And I was thrown into the role of being a caregiver slash care partner. You know, what was that like? I mean, you had your life that you guys were living with your family and then everything switches. So how was the transition for you as the wife of a cancer patient? It was extremely difficult, uh, but uh, being a very pragmatic person, I took it step by step, um, realizing that this was something that immediately changed our lives. Um, it was uh, it was hard. I mean, it was hard in the sense of you know, here's your um, spouse who all of a sudden needs a lot of care, and you've got. Two well, I had two children who uh, one was getting ready to apply to universities because it was the uh, beginning of September and uh, the other one had just started high school. So mm -hmm. those were both, you know, difficult times of their lives and, you know, times that require, you know, somebody to be helping them. And um, also being the person who's communicating with family, with his friends, and just trying to manage my own emotions. So there was a lot going on. And how did you manage your emotions while being there for him? Um, well, like I just mentioned, uh, taking things step by step, allowing myself uh, the time to cry. I felt that that was important to get, you know, that emotion out when I, when it needed to go out. Thank goodness we have a dog. So there were, you know, opportunities to walk the dog during the day and have some time to myself on those walks. And many times, you know, my neighbors can attest to this. I, I'm famous for walking around with big sunglasses and they came in very handy when there are, you know, tears welling in your eyes. There were, there were different methods of self-care 
that I took um, very seriously. And, um, you know, for anybody who uh, is put in the position of being a caregiver or a care partner, there are certain things that I suggest to them that, you know, they should really try and not forego. Um, but having a support system was imperative. And the support system included everything from our medical team. And I stress the word team because I felt that we were all, you know, going about this for the same reason and that we were there to support one another. And, um, you know, just making sure that you're taking care of yourself. And I really tried to make sure that, you know, I heeded that advice that was given to me by other people to make sure that I wasn't uh, skipping good meals and, you know, doing the things that I needed to do to keep myself strong. I think that's so important that, you know, it's your partner, your family member, you know, whoever it is going through something, but in order to be the best caregiver that you can be, you have to also make sure you're doing what you need for yourself. 100%. How much do you do? You know, in a sense, I guess what I'm trying to ask is when someone's diagnosed, okay, it's with cancer, it's we got to find the best team. What's the right treatment? You're doing all this research. As a caregiver, how much did you do or, you know, what was your role in all of that? So from the time that he was diagnosed, we both, um, we had a good cry. And then um, immediately I said to my husband, okay, we know what this is. Let's just deal with it. Let's get the best people around us and let's deal with it. So we're both educated. Um, and, you know, we just, we wanted to make sure that we, we went to the proper resources to read up on what glioblastoma was. Of course, we were told in the hospital it was, but as anybody knows, when you're uh, thrown with a diagnosis, something as serious as that, um, you're kind of hit with a lot at once. So mm -hmm. taking information back when we had some quiet time, but also um, we were lucky in the sense that we knew some people that had already been working in the healthcare system and it could have been anybody that was working in the healthcare system. I mean, it could have been from somebody as high up as a specialist to somebody who just worked in a hospital. We would ask everybody that we knew in those two weeks before he was set to have surgery, um, who they might know that could be helpful to us in educating us on what the right thing was for us to do. And we felt that that time was crucial to make sure that whoever we were going to end up partnering with in our team was going to be the right people for us. Um, and one of the biggest things for us, of course, you want the people who you know, are, are top of their field. But something as simple as having really great listening skills was very important to us. Um, somebody who was willing to listen to our questions and take the time to answer them in a way that we understood uh, was very important. So, um, so that, you know, that was one of the ways that I had helped uh, my husband. And uh, so the both of us just kind of went to our resources just to see who it was that we could collect as part of our support circle. I really think it's so important that you had the conversation about how to best support each other. I think that's and, and work together to figure out what was the right step, who was the part, you know, who was going to be part of the team. 
What about your children? Did you tell them right away? To be honest with you, I don't even remember telling them. I know I would have told them Mm -hmm. pretty much right away. And of course, um, as I said earlier, they were in grade nine and grade 12. So I mean, the internet being the way that it is and kids being on it all the time, Mm -hmm. all they needed to know what dad had and they could easily, I'm sure in their quiet time, Mm -hmm. were going online. Our son, even at the time, you know, we laugh about it now, but, uh, you know, a few years ago when this was all happening, he would give us a list of questions to take to our specialist that he Mm -hmm. wanted answers to. Mm -hmm. So um, I do remember having some conversations um, at some point with them in the car. I found that that was the easiest place for me to have a conversation with them because I didn't have to look at them. Because looking at them and talking about this just would have broken my heart. Mm-hmm. So having the focus of driving, but still having a conversation with them and them being a captive audience um, just seemed like the right way for me to have talks with them. That is such a great uh, just perspective. And I think something that a lot of parents will find helpful because it is, it's heartbreaking, and, but you have to have those conversations. So this is such a good way to have them while, you know, while not having that direct eye contact. The other thing, too, I found um, worked for us was um, because it was the beginning of the school year, I wanted to engage the schools as well to mm-hmm. make sure that, because to be honest, they're spending so much of the day at school that as a parent, you don't necessarily know how they're coping when they're not in your care. So I went to the head of each school just to let them know what was going on with us. They really appreciated knowing that information just so that they could have, you know, an extra set of eyes on Mm -hmm. the kids. And the other thing that I had learned was um, they, they hadn't shared our experience with their friends. And I found that very surprising. I had only learned that just because a couple of parents had come up to me quite a while afterwards, and I'm talking months afterwards, to say, I'm so sorry, I heard from so-and-so about what you've been going through. My son or my daughter never mentioned anything to me. I don't think they know. Mm -hmm. And so me going to the parents and as well, like keeping them apprised of what's going on, helped as well, just so that they could tell their kids to keep an eye on, on mine. So it takes a village, literally, but I mean, you know, maybe sneaky in some ways, you know, what we did, but I found it helpful, at least for my own conscience to know that, you know, they were being taken care of. Mm-hmm. And how did everything unfold after the surgery? Uh, well, he was home the next day, so that was a lot to take in. Um, but uh, you know, he was he was able to walk and talk, and um, so you know, caring for the for the stitches was something. Um, and uh, he had to have some time to heal, and then I believe it was about um, six or eight weeks afterwards that he started radiation and chemo. Um, and, uh, and he tolerated that very well. He stayed active. He really pushed himself, himself to stay active, which I thought was fantastic. And um, so, but yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot to take, but it is what it is, right? 
Absolutely. And what was your role in all of that as he was recovering? Were you with him during the day? Were you physically helping him? Kind of how, how did your life play and adapt at that point? Yeah, so I um, so my background is in public relations. I had a freelance business at the time and just completely scaled everything back just because I just knew that I just didn't have the mental capacity. And I know it's a luxury to be able to do that and not everyone is in that position, but I thought this is something that I can do and this is what I'm going to do to help him and my family. So because I just felt that this was just going to be bigger than anything I had to deal with and work just had to take a back seat to it. So, you know, I helped him with everything from of course meals to um, cleaning the wound, um, anything else that he may need, you know, communicating with family, having people come over and be with him, uh, helping the kids. So anything that I could do, I was there for. How did that affect your marriage? You know, he was obviously very self-sufficient before all of this, and it's a loss of identity for a lot of people when they can't do all the things that they want to do, and it can be even harder to have to ask for help. So how did that interplay affect your relationship together? Fortunately, we really enjoy spending time together. So um, I can't say that um, from that standpoint, there was there was anything that um, affected us, uh, our marriage negatively in any kind of way. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, when, when you do spend that much time together, I think everybody needs a break once in a while, right? I mean, I could even say the same for him. He would probably, you know, like to have some time away from me always being around. So, um, you know, so for the times that, you know, he, he spent a lot of time just, you know, relaxing, watching movies or just, you know, taking calls from people or having visitors. When those things would be happening, I would step out and go for a walk or, you know, go and, you know, maybe grab a coffee with a friend or, you know, something that was just for me. So um, I think we, we were very respectful of each other's space. And when the time was to spend time together, and of course, when the time was that it was okay to spend time apart. There are a lot of support groups for cancer patients, and there's not as many for caregivers. Did you, you know, look into any of that? Was that something that you availed yourself of? Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Um, there, there was a um, facility in Toronto that was doing um, – support groups where they split up the caregivers and the patients for glioblastoma. Um, it might've been actually for brain tumor patients, but um, from what I understand, they were no longer doing the support group. So um, through the Brain Tumor Foundation, I um, came across some group support that was at Sunnybrook where he was going for his um, treatments. And um, they have the patients and the caregivers in one room. My preference would have been to be with just the caregivers just to get their perspective, um, but it, it, there just wasn't anything in the city that was available. There are online groups, but that's not how I prefer to communicate with people. It's just, you know, I think for something where, um, I guess if you have just, you know, a quick question that you want to throw out onto a chat room, that's fine, but that wasn't the kind of support that I was looking for. 
So I've yet to find something where it's just for caregivers, but um, you know, in the meantime, this works. I think that's interesting that, you know, you talk about how the online support group wasn't really right for you because it is really getting a big movement. Um, you know, a lot of people are actually not going to in-person support groups and are utilizing you know, the closed Facebook groups or Instagram or Twitter to get the support that they need. Yeah, that just, you know what, I understand how some people prefer that, but I guess I'm just more of a face-to-face kind of person. I feel like so much, um, of the nuances get lost in the questions that you might be asking or maybe the responses that you're hoping to get um, by going to online rooms. But, you know, I completely understand why some people, some people live in remote areas where that's their only choice. Um, I just would have thought that in the city there would have been, um, you know, more available as far as face-to-face, but, you know, even through the group support that uh, I started going to at Sunnybrook, um, there were a few of us caregivers that have sort of branched off and, you know, gotten together for coffee. And so that's helpful, you know, just to have, you know, somebody who really understands what you're going through. And do you think that it's helpful to have a disease specific support group or would you have, you know, was it better to have kind of just a cancer support group for caregivers? So here's my take. So, um, I'm a big fan of one-on-one therapy. Uh, I feel that, um, especially with something that takes over your life, like what this has done to ours, having one hour of someone just listening to me, and I know it sounds maybe selfish to some people, but having that hour where I can just talk and let things out is invaluable. So um, having the group support is nice, Um, And connecting with other people who are sharing your experience is great. But I find that I walk away feeling more relieved when I've had um, an unbiased person just listening to me. Um, But on that same uh, theme, with as far as support, where I get um, real value is when I just get together with my friends and I don't talk about cancer. That to me just really feels like relief. There are times where I feel like I need to share what's going on, but more times, especially now, I feel that it's just nice to not have to talk about it and just forget about it. And our surgeon, when he was first diagnosed, I will never forget this. He had, he had said to us, you know, I know this is a lot and, you know, but there will be a day where this will all be on the back burner and you'll be able to forget about it. And I didn't believe him at the time because I thought, there's no way, how can, how can that happen? And it's those moments when I'm with my friends or with you know, just having you know, fun for an hour or two with people who aren't talking about my experience where it's on the back burner. So that brings up a really good point. A lot of people, many people don't know what to say to either someone who's been diagnosed with cancer or someone whose partner or family member is going through cancer. What was good that people said to you and what was maybe not so good? And, and what advice would you have to someone listening who, who doesn't know what to say? It's not easy for everybody to broach the subject. I understand that. But um, how are you is not a hard question to ask. And it's one that 
a lot of people tend to avoid for some reason or another when they know that you're going through something very difficult. Maybe they're just not prepared for what the answer is. Maybe they're not prepared for if you start to cry and how they're going to deal with that. But how are you or are you okay are simple starters. And um, and I would also recommend for anybody who's a caregiver going through this experience, um, and I would say it's not even just the caregiver. It could be the family of the caregiver. You know, I can use my own mom as an example when I told her about um, she was the first person that I called when we got the diagnosis. And she's from a generation where they didn't share. You know, they didn't share what was going on in the house. And, you know, a lot was private. And what I said back to her was, be honest. Be honest about what we're going through. And because, you know, we need our village around us. And, you know, I, I really took that to heart um, in sharing my experience with people, not hiding what's going on. Um, of course, you know, to a limit, but that would be the one big thing that I would tell anybody, just be honest. And you'd be surprised at who, um, who ends up relating to what you're going through. Uh, and then your support circle just becomes bigger as a result of that. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really helpful. Let's talk a little bit about resilient people. And mm. tell me what that is, how it started, and just much more about that. Okay, yeah. So Resilient People is a website that I created back in 2018. Uh, it was a result of sitting around in waiting rooms for hours and hours and you know, thinking about people saying to us, wow, you guys are handling this so well. How do you do it? Which I was always struck by because I'd always think we're just doing what we do. I didn't think that we were doing anything remarkable. Um, but then I would look around the waiting room and see people on their own or, you know, just wonder, you know, while I'm people watching, you know, how are these people staying strong, you know, or, um, you know, who's their support circle. And, you know, we were very lucky in the sense that we had, um, you know, strong family connections, as I said, you know, an amazing medical team around us, friends. Um, our, support, our support circle was, was really great. And um, so as a result of that, I started thinking about some of the people that I knew personally, who I found to be very resilient. They had gone through something that was um, life-altering, very challenging and but they seemed to bounce back and um, some of them had created something to help other people as a result of whatever their experience was that they had gone through and I kind of thought well maybe there's something to this maybe there's something to telling stories about just ordinary people I call them extraordinary um, with extra being emphasized um, who have gone through something challenging but uh, created something to help other people be resilient too. So as a result of that, I started with a few stories. And from that, I posted them to my website, um, resilientpeople.ca. And from that, I would get uh, people on Twitter writing me, I would get emails from people saying, well, I've got a story to share. And from that, I've got dozens and dozens now of stories on the website and that continue to keep coming of people who uh, are just ordinary people who are just trying to help others uh, bounce back. And so that's resilient people. And I also have experts who contribute articles on 
maintaining resilience, uh, building it. And um, so it's, it started off as, I think, my own little way of um, continuing to build a strong support circle around me. It was kind of, of a cathartic experience. But now it's just become something that other people are telling me, wow, I just love that story about so-and-so that I read on your, on your website. And that's very satisfying to me. I'm sure it's incredibly helpful. I, I mean, in addition to being cathartic for you, but just to, for other people to see that they are not alone in this, that there are others going through the exact same thing and how they're coping and how they're handling it. 100%. You know, it's, um, you know, how you can identify and, you know, relate to the stories that you're reading, but also realize that, you know, there is a way to triumph over the challenge and you know it doesn't have to define everything it can be something that you can use as a platform whatever the story is that i've covered you know it's not just cancer stories there you know um i can use an example of you know susan mintz a woman from florida who uh, wrote me to tell me about um her husband who had contracted hiv and aids from having uh, homosexual relationships. He died, but as a result of that, Susan, who is a senior uh, for the last couple of decades has uh, become an advocate for HIV and AIDS, safe sex awareness. And I just use people like that as an example of taking something that was a very difficult time in her life, but making it a platform to help other people. That's wonderful. What would you say, in having gone through this, have been some of the biggest challenges that you have faced? Uh, sleep. <laughs> sleep has been a challenge, getting, you know, a solid night's sleep. And we all know if you don't, you know, that's a repeated, you know, problem, then it can really wreak havoc. So melatonin has become a very good friend of mine at bedtime. Um, you know, disappointment that sometimes comes with um, sharing what's going on and not getting the feedback that I was hoping to get or the support that I was hoping to get. But, you know, I just try to remind myself for that person who's not giving back, there are at least 10 others that are there to, you know, wrap their arms around us and, you know, let us know that everything's okay. So, um yeah, so just, you know, getting a new context on things and challenge, I mean, having the kids and just making sure that they're okay, just keeping everybody's head above water. That was the biggest challenge. You know, there's a lot that's been written and talked about, about how we don't support our caregivers enough, right? So we don't, we're not very good at making sure that the caregivers are getting the support that they need the self-care that they need, you know, whatever it is that we're really focused always on the patient. And do you have any recommendations for doctors or any providers about how to address the caregiver's needs? Um, I would say that our uh, nurse practitioner was really helpful in uh, letting me know that uh, therapy was available to me as well as to my husband. Uh, I just assumed that there wouldn't be anything 
uh, for me that I'd have to be finding my own therapist somewhere in the city that, you know, could um, really help me. But um, having them let me know that there was something available at the hospital was great. Um, I would say having, if it's group support that people are looking for, maybe having more of that available to people um, on a face-to-face -face level, uh, if that's what people are looking for. Um, I just actually uh, partnered with the Brain Tumor Foundation. They're um, creating a resource that's strictly for caregivers, a book. Um, that will also be available online. And uh, so I was writing the caregiver stories from a number of people who submitted their stories. And resources like that, I think, are fantastic. So if more of those types of things can become available, I think that would be really helpful to people as well. That's great. Are there any resources that you are available today that you do recommend? To be honest, I can't say that there's anything specific to caregivers that I've I've used other than, you know, for my own one-on-one -on -one therapy. Mm -hmm. I think that really just underscores the need about more resources, more books, more materials for caregivers. I think you're right. You know, I think if you I talk to anyone who's been diagnosed or treated with cancer, you know, they'll say, oh, absolutely, you know, these websites, these resources, there's just an abundance of material out there, which is incredible. But I think we're also kind of not paying as much attention to the caregiver population, which is really important. I mean, that could have been partially, you know, me looking for specific things that I thought that I needed. I know that you know, there are different yoga classes that are offered at the cancer center and painting classes and those types of things that wasn't aligned with what I was looking for, but, um, I'm sure other caregivers could say, you know, that's exactly what I needed. And I think that you, that's so important to know what you're looking for, you know, to know this is what I need. And that does require a little bit of mental, you know, work and figuring out what is it that I need to be the best person that I can be right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to be honest, you know, I had mentioned that, uh, you know, for support, uh, a lot of what I was looking for had nothing to do with cancer. You know, it was just, mm -hmm. and I was playing tennis twice a week with a group of women and uh, for two hours at a time, hitting a ball for two hours, I'm telling you, it's great therapy. So, um, you know, that to me was really satisfying. Um, so, you know, maybe there are outlets other than that are strictly cancer related um, that people, you know, should think about, you know, what's your interest? Um, what's a great way to blow up some steam, you know, when you need to do that? Or if it's something that uh, you can't leave the house for whatever reason, because your, you know, your spouse or your partner needs you there, find some way, you know, within, you know, the space of your house or your property that you can have time on your own. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you have to have that time. You know, I think sometimes people may feel guilty in focusing on them when obviously they have to focus on their family member and loved one, but you have to have that time to yourself and you really can't feel guilty about that. Don't feel guilty. No. And you know what, if it's just, you know, 10 minutes, take the 10 minutes, but make sure it's quality time. Exactly. I think, you know, Right now, you see, you go online, you hear all this stuff about self-care and people think, you know, self-care is a massage and a spa day. And no, self-care is whatever you need for yourself. And you're right. It doesn't have to be 
this prolonged period of time. It could be a five minute meditation. It could be a walk. It could be 10 minutes to read a book or have a cup of coffee. You know, I try to stress that to my patients and their family members that do what's right for you. Yep. hundred percent. Is there anything uh, before we wrap up that you want to share or something that we haven't touched upon? No, I think, um, I think, you know, for the most part, you know, for caregivers, just, I, I just want to stress that, um, you know, just to be honest about what you're going through and, uh, you know, just connect with the right people, make sure you have the right people around you. Uh, and that would make a big difference to, you know, how you're coping with this experience. Cause it's a lot. And, you know, just having, um, anybody around sometimes isn't the right approach. You you need to make sure that it's you know people that are listening to you that are there for you, and um, to really take stock of that. That's really important in finding the right people that will be with you. Thank you so much, Janet, for talking to me. I think this is going to be extremely helpful for so many of the listeners and people who. You know, and I'll say, I don't think this is just for cancer. I think it's for caregivers of any illness, chronic illness. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Topinski, for the opportunity. It was wonderful to have you on. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, if you are loving the show, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow the show. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dr. Toplinski, as well as on my website, www.interludecancerstories.com. Have a great weekend, and I will see all of you next week.